We live in an age of political polarization and preference bubbles, of economic change, rising threats, and a rapidly changing world. Canada needs to stay relevant. We need more smart conversations. We need to dive into critical issues and big ideas with passion and unrestrained optimism. I'm Aaron O'Toole. Welcome to the Blue Skies Podcast. Welcome to Canadian Defence Focus from CDR Radio, produced by Canadian Defence Review Magazine. This series of podcasts features interviews with leaders and experts in the defence industry, as well as reports and profiles on the very latest in defence technology. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the CDR Radio podcast. I'm James Carlos, Ottawa Bureau Chief with Canadian Defence Review, Canada's leading defence magazine. This time on the CDR Radio podcast, my guest is Aaron O'Toole. He is Member of Parliament for Durham, former Conservative Party leader and leader of the opposition, and former Minister of Veterans Affairs under Stephen Harper. What many people may not know about Aaron O'Toole is that he served in the Canadian Armed Forces for 12 years, eventually rising to the rank of Captain in the RCAF. Since that time, he has kept a close eye on Canadian military affairs and has some interesting insights to share on the war in Ukraine, NORAD modernization, and Canada's cybersecurity policy. Hi, Mr. O'Toole. Thanks for joining us on the CDR Radio podcast. Thank you for the opportunity. So let's start with your military career. How did your 12 years in service shape your view of Canada's defense posture and needs and the current world situation? Well, I was very fortunate to graduate high school and join the Canadian Armed Forces. I went to the Royal Military College in Kingston and, you know, I was 18. So it was still a formative time in my life where I was able to look at global events, Canada's role in them, our relationships in NATO and NORAD, but also RMC steeped you in our, our military history and heritage so you could understand the development of Canada alongside our, our allies our values as a nation. And so that really was formative to me. I then had the opportunity to fly as a tactical navigator on the Sea King helicopter and deploy with the Navy. So train and serve alongside some of our allies in the United States at NATO, do anti-submarine warfare at a time where the Cold War was dissipating and this sort of hegemonic period of, of the United States as the sole, sole global power after the Cold War was taking root. And now we're back to a sort of a great powers rivalry with, with China and, of course, a resurgent Russia. So for me, getting into public life later on and, and my time in the corporate world, all my time in the military, particularly time at military college, really helped you develop a, a longer term strategic outlook. And I really have always been one to advocate for Canada playing a strong role on the world stage commensurate with our size and our values. So we, we need to step up to defend the things that we care about. So let's pivot to Ukraine. Now, what's your assessment of the military situation there, especially as Putin appears to have doubled down by calling up some of his reserves? Well, the the admission by Putin, uh, admission by action in this case, of calling up 300,000 reservists and saber-rattling that if NATO gets involved, he's threatening the use of, of nuclear weapons. He has not had a good month and a half uh, in terms of Ukrainian uh, battlefield 
performance has really gained back territory uh, from a tired and and really not very effective Russian operation. So Ukraine has been able to recapture lands, is making headway even into the, the Donbass region, which is a region that for the last decade in, in Western Ukraine that, that Russia has been conducting a, a, a phony war, um, really disrupting local things on the ground, creating this bogus narrative of a Russian-speaking population wanting to wanting to separate. Even in that area where Russian tentacles have been present, uh, Ukraine is making great strides. So I think Putin has has indicated that he's in this for the long term by by deploying more troops. But I think Western allies have to realize that this is an opportunity for us to not just maintain our commitment to Ukraine, but to step it up. Because if we do not allow the logistic supply chain to continue to help Ukraine, uh, some of the artillery pieces that the Americans have given them have been used to great effect. Some of the training that Canadian soldiers have provided to Ukrainian soldiers through Op Unifier over the, the last seven years are really paying dividends. So I think Canada has a special role on supply, advisory supports, training, and we need to do more alongside our allies to show that we will commit to the long term in support of our ally. Now, I have to ask, because this, I must admit, dogs me, what ultimately do you think is Putin's motivation? I mean, I have my own theories, but I don't have your background. Why do you think at the, at the heart of this, he's actually doing this? Well, that's a great question, James. And and here I'll do a, a cross plug for, for my podcast, the Blue Skies Political Podcast. And maybe we can do some cross promotion here if you don't mind. I've had feel a, free, sir. I, I admire you for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've had a few really good discussions on this issue, both with uh, some national security experts and with with a, an expert on China. In that, with this great power rivalry we're back into now, where the emerging large China on the world stage, uh, Putin uh, reasserting kind of almost the Soviet-like empire, wanting to reconstitute that, is creating this environment where these dictatorships, really, because they are really controlled by by a small group, and in some cases, one man, whether it's Xi or Putin, they like to control what's called their near abroad. That's basically their doorstep. And so if they're worried about holding on to power and territory, possibly advancing and gaining more territory, whether in Ukraine or in the case of China with Taiwan, the first step for them is to have absolute dominance and control over their near abroad, so the countries around them. And we've seen this with Russia over many years. It's it's a case, James, almost like the, the frog that's been in the pot and is slowly being boiled. We've seen uh, the, the incursion into Crimea. We've seen the shooting down of the Malaysian airliner. We've seen cyber attacks uh, against Ukraine, all in the buildup to this full-scale invasion that happened six months ago. Um, that is all to control and to really send a signal that Putin was going to fight and resist European and NATO expansion to his doorstep. And over many years, I've talked to ambassadors from the Baltic countries and and Ukraine, of course, Poland. There has been a real fear for many years that this was Putin's desire to have 
total control over that near abroad. And you see the same thing in, in China. So I do think that is the end game for Putin. He wants to really control the countries around him, have that, uh, that influence upon and leverage upon Europe and upon the regions he borders. There's also a demographic piece here. If Russia is, a, is to assert its, its power and its dominance, it really has about a decade to do that before it starts getting into population decline, something that a lot of the Western countries and, and, and even China don't realize that that's on the horizon and they won't be able to really uh, fulfill these large standing armies. So this is Putin's window to really control the areas around him and maximize his influence. And we have to stand very strongly against this. And, and I'm glad to this date that, that the Western NATO allies have. Brings up the question, what will it take to win this war or at least not make it worth continuing for Russia, as was the case in Afghanistan, where they, they eventually pulled out? Well, the, good comparison. It, it is persistence and it's, and it's a willingness to support Ukraine uh, in the way we are right now. We're not an active participant, but we are supplying both non-lethal and, and lethal weaponry. We're supplying intelligence, training, a whole range of supports to help Ukrainians defend their own their own homeland. That has to continue. And we can't allow this to be a battle of attrition where uh, Putin keeps calling up reservists, never really has the has the victory he thought he would have within a few weeks or months, but it it could get into almost this stalemate situation where we see uh, new Russian recruits retake a city or, or regain some land, and then two months later Ukrainian forces retaking it. It could be this seesaw approach for many for many months, maybe over over a year to eighteen months. And what we have to do is to make sure that supply chain, so artillery pieces, weapons, ammunition, uh, support with intelligence from satellite imagery, drones, training, everything we can provide to make sure that Ukraine can keep up this remarkable defense they've brought to date. And if, if we do, not only does it wear down Putin to the point that he may have to save face, there could be... It's unlikely now, but maybe in a year, there could be resistance within Russia to this, you know, losing war effort that will soon be seen as, as Putin's folly. And we have to just stay resolute alongside our allies and, and not back down. Now, that's a point I, of course, wonder about, because one of the greatest problems historically with the West and the public here is they wear down, they lose interest. I mean, the media doesn't cover the war like it used to. Now, what I wonder, does NATO and the West have the commitment to support Ukraine over the long term, especially, for instance, in terms of weaponry, where they've tapped into their own stocks and will need to buy more weapons to supply to Ukraine? That's a great question. And I think so far, James, the Western resolve is strong and it needs to remain there. Some of the support packages in the United States um, now really approaching $100 billion in terms of weaponry, equipment and direct supports is really leading the way. Canada, uh, Germany, the United Kingdom, other, other main allies have also stepped up. That has to be maintained because you're right. The the Western social media 24-7 culture means that we look to the next story and 
Ukraine goes from page one above the fold to page nine of the paper. And I really want to compliment the efforts of the Ukrainian-Canadian diaspora, the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, the League of Ukrainian-Canadians, the World Ukrainian Congress, which right now is run by a Canadian, Paul Grodd, someone I've known for many years. They've formulated a military civilian advisory uh, group headed up in part by retired Chief of Defence Staff Rick Hillier. All of these efforts are not only keeping the war in Ukraine on the radar of Canadians, it is helping deliver new and important tools and supports to Ukraine. So Ukrainian Canadians have raised tens of millions of dollars in terms of aid for Ukrainian families, for the military. You know, obviously they can't fundraise for lethal weapons, but for flak jackets and night vision goggles, it's been incredible to see the outpouring of support. You know, my my son wears a hoodie supporting Ukraine. We've bought baked goods and a whole range of things to to show our support. That's been run by the diaspora here. And I do think a lot of Canadian Armed Forces veterans as well have been uh, really active in spreading the message because we've had hundreds of Canadians, uh, if not maybe a few thousand over the last eight years almost, supporting Operation Unifier, where Canadian troops have been supporting Ukraine. So I think we have to fight to make sure that we don't look to the next story and and forget about our commitment. The other thing I want to add here, James, there is so much Russian misinformation on social media. I've noticed that even, um, even Canadians, even some veterans send me notes after I do some of my work on Ukraine asking questions. And the questions almost always stem from misinformation they've read, saying uh, Ukrainian forces are full of neo-Nazis, or the the latest one that that uh, Russian troops were were you know treating the wounded and and going above and beyond, and, and Ukrainian forces were you know violating Geneva Convention protocols, that sort of thing. All of this is misinformation, propaganda, bogus that Russia has been engaged in for the last decade. And it is so pervasive now that it, it we have to stand resolute against it. So I, I send messages back to these veterans saying, don't believe this stuff. They've called Christian Freeland, my colleague James Bazan, neo-Nazis. This is Russian propaganda at its worst, and we can't let it crack our resolve one iota. Yes, it reminds me of the theory of the big lie under the Nazis, which is if you just keep telling it often enough, people will buy it. I've seen it, James, you know, in fact, where I know a veteran in one one case who commented one of my posts and did so earnestly. But I had to say to him, look, you you are basically echoing propaganda lines. And in that case, the veteran had read it from a feed of another veteran friend of, of his. So in social media, don't always trust the post your battle buddy or your friend is putting out there because you don't know the, the the source of it. We've seen this rampant in the United States, James, where the Republicans have had elected members of Congress question aid packages to Ukraine, parroting again Russian propaganda lines. So it just it it shows that social media is is a tool for, as I said, the Ukrainian community raising millions of dollars of support and finding homes for Ukrainian refugees. I've welcomed a, a few myself, both in, in Ottawa and in, in the Durham region. 
but social media can also be a cesspool of, of propaganda, misinformation, and the attempts to undermine our resolve, and we have to fight against it. Well, touching on what you've been saying about misinformation, cybersecurity has been a big concern during Russia's aggression against Ukraine. Just how big is the problem of misinformation and cyber warfare? How big a threat is it to the West? And what are we doing to deal with it? I think it's one of the major threats we face today, James. And what is confounding about this problem with you know cybersecurity in general is that most Canadians don't even realize it is a risk, let alone one of the most significant. And why do I say that? You know, we're always sleeping in the comfort of our geography. You know, we're separated from Europe and from the near abroad of Russia, as I was talking about earlier. We're also positioned right above our greatest ally and the strongest global superpower in the United States. So we've always had that blanket of geography to keep us warm and safe. But with cyber attacks, they take many forms. We've talked about the misinformation and, and Russian propaganda through through Facebook and through social media, sowing seeds of discord, uh, spreading lies about Ukraine or other groups to really make our democracy more chaotic. That's really their goal. Sometimes it's just to make sure that we're fighting and that we don't have the resolve we need, like in this case, to stand by Ukraine. But cyber warfare can also take very, very uh, extreme um, results on on your population. As I said earlier, there was a well-known cyber attack by Russia against Ukraine that shut down the electricity grid for part of Ukraine. If there was ever a major cyber attack on our financial infrastructure, on the Interact system, or on our our electricity grid, uh, that would cause chaos. We saw the Rogers outage, James, and I'm not sure if you're a Rogers customer. Uh, Our family is. The Rogers outage, which affected some Interact services and others, literally paralyzed us for a, a, a day just from a simple inconvenience standpoint. If there was ever something that hit our hardened infrastructure, that would be a huge disruption. So I think this is a huge, huge area that we have to invest more in, do do more in. Um, there was just a report out in recent days from the University of Quebec highlighting 75 specific foreign cyber warfare operations since 2010 against Canada of all different types. And there's Countries like Russia, China, Iran, North Korea are at the heart of these. So I think Canadians have to know we're going to have to have significant investments to really safeguard our critical infrastructure. Now, speaking of investments, uh, the modernization of NORAD is now on the horizon. What do you think needs to be done to bring it to 21st century standards? And are the Canadian and U.S. governments willing to spend that kind of money right now? After seven years of pounding my head against the wall on on NORAD modernization, on Arctic's sovereignty and security, I'm glad to see that the Trudeau government appears to be taking this seriously. And this is, a, I think, a direct result, finally, of Russia's invasion, full invasion of Ukraine, is the fact that we border Russia and we are actually in a border dispute with Russia in terms of the Arctic continental shelf. And I've been advocating for at least five years now for us to completely modernize and fulfill our NORAD obligations with the United States. And that includes ballistic missile defense capability. Canada 
participates in some ballistic missile defense opportunities and exercises through NATO, but we don't in our own North American defense. And I think that's very short-sighted. NORAD has been the, the sort of fundamental tenant of our defense policy since World War II. And I think Canada needs to be a full participant, not a participant in 90% of NORAD operations, but in, in 100%. Um, we had hearings a few years ago where the Canadian NORAD general said to us, if there was ever a discussion about ballistic missile defense, that is the one time Canadian officers in Colorado Springs would be sent out of the room. We don't want to be in a situation where we're not part of security and defense conversations. So I think these investments would be significant, but they're also in our national interest and great opportunity for Canadian defense, aerospace and security companies to to be part of these investments. What the Trudeau government is committed to so far, at least they've said this, um, you know, verbally, I haven't seen many financial commitments towards it yet, but is the modernization of the North Warning System, which is kind of the modern equivalent of the dew line monitoring our, our defenses in the Arctic. That is step one. We need a lot more infrastructure and capability in the North to really assert our sovereignty at a time where, where Russian influence, uh, China's ambitions in the Arctic could really cause people to doubt our sovereignty at a time that there's polar sea routes and resource development in the high Arctic. Speaking of modernization, this brings up the whole issue of submarines. Now, as a proponent of clean nuclear power yourself, do you think Canada should be following Australia's example and getting nuclear subs instead of diesels? There's a great question. And I think this goes back to a white paper back in 1987, uh, where and I studied this at the military college going back uh, to the earlier parts of our discussion, where Canada committed to Arctic defense by having this capability. And what your listeners for this podcast, they probably realize it, but maybe more broadly, Canadians don't realize it. When you're patrolling under a, a ice cap in the, in the Arctic, a diesel submarine generally has to surface to, uh, to vent the exhaust and to to replenish and and it's a battery driven um, submarine. The nuclear powered submarines do not have to, so they can transit uh, really for months on time if they need to. And these type of of capabilities are critical in in the Arctic if you really want to have the ability to patrol in and around an ice cap particularly with climate change, an ice cap that may, may be changing. So I think that's a capability we need. It is a very significant investment. But I think if, if Canadians realize that increasing our cyber defense capability and patrolling our Arctic sovereignty better is in their interest, in the national interest, I think they're, they're open to those investments. And it would allow us to be closer to our, our NATO 2% target, which we should we should be making as a leading nation in NATO. So I've advocated for many years. It was actually in our election platform last year when I led the Conservatives to increase defense spending towards the 2% target with major investments going to Arctic capability and to cyber capability. And I think most Canadians, when they realize the extent of how poor we are and how ineffective we are in these critical areas right now, I think they'd want us to ramp up investment and make sure that we're 
protecting and defending our sovereignty. So how do you foresee the world security situation evolving over the next few years, not just Russia and Ukraine, but of course, China and its ambitions and just the entire chaotic world picture? This is where I think Canada needs to be very, very strategic and needs to move quickly. I try on some of these big picture issues not to be crassly partisan, but after seven years of the Trudeau government, we are literally irrelevant on the world stage. Um, You talked about the Australian submarine deal. The AUKUS relationship, Australia, the UK, the US, that's a new version of the five eyes. If we suddenly start getting boxed out of our most important security intelligence and, and defense relationships, if we slowly become a bit player within the Western alliance, whether NATO or whether bilaterally with our traditional allies and, and emerging ones in, in groups like the Quad, we will slowly see our influence diminish. And I think over time, our, our prosperity and our security diminish. So what we're, we're seeing now, James, in my view, is an emerging great power world again, where you're going to see China's ambitions with their capable blue water navy, with their construction of military bases and refueling ports in the South China Sea, ambitions in the Arctic, Russia exerting its influence in its near abroad and and disrupting the democratic world. There's going to be these great powers and the, the democratic powers headed by the United States. We've traditionally been the key partner of the United States, bringing in European, uh, Australian and other key partners. If we're not in that Western alliance in a significant way, both contributing to uh, operations like Ukraine, paying our fair share in NATO, defending our own territory and having capability in emerging areas like the Pacific, we're not going to be taken seriously. So I think Canada has to realize right now our influence is waning dramatically. And I think we have to redouble our efforts to be a strong, active, and and relevant participant in this emerging great power environment where we're firmly committed to to working with the U.S. and our closest allies. Yes, I agree with your description. It makes me think of the great game of the 19th century. It sounds like we have a new version of it. I guess as a final question, you touched in general on what you think Canada should do, but what specifically should we be doing uh, in the next few years and, and going forward in terms of actually being ready for this new world? Well, you know, I, I, there isn't a day go by that I uh, that I wish we didn't hold on to the lead we had midway through the election last year. And, you know, the election was so much about COVID when it should have been about the next 20 years for Canada. You know, we tried to make it that discussion. So I've been trying to advocate for us to play a more significant role in the Indo-Pacific, for example. So we should be fighting really to be part of this AUKUS relationship or an enhanced five eyes. We should be doing more with India, with Japan, and we need capability. So that means investments longer term in in naval capacity in the Arctic and in uh, an enhanced Pacific presence. But we need long-term investments in trade and capacity building as well. So I think we are a trading nation. We've benefited greatly by it. But very quickly, if we see China's 
controlling the critical minerals market, for example, if we see the unfettered influence through the Belt and Road Initiative and Canada and our allies aren't stepping up to fill that gap, you're going to see non-democratic rivals really start having influence around the world at a time where I think we see democracy on its hind legs and we see the freedom index with Freedom House going down each year because of the rise of dictatorships and, and single party rule. I think Canada needs more significant investment in both our, our military and our diplomatic and, and aid infrastructure. And we have to make sure we're doing more, I think, in that Indo-Pacific region. We are an Atlantic country. We're also a Pacific country and an Arctic country. And we need to be able to project our influence and our, our presence in each of those spheres. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Mr. O'Toole, for joining us today on the CDR Radio podcast. Thank you, James. It was a great discussion. Look forward to coming back. I've been speaking with Aaron O'Toole, retired RCAF captain, member of parliament for Durham, and former leader of the opposition and conservative party. To hear more CDR radio podcasts, go to www.canadiandefensereview.com or find us on iTunes, Google Play, and now Spotify under CDR radio. I'm James Careless. Thank you for listening to the CDR radio podcast. Talk to you again next time. Tune in next time for another Canadian Defence Focus podcast from CDR Radio.